Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So we know that oil is in the crosshairs of a national debate. And um, there's a lot of question about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. Should there be more pipeline infrastructure in Canada? Or should the energy be placed elsewhere to battle climate change? These are all issues we're going to talk about this hour. We're going to talk about and get your calls as well. And we'll talk as well about what Canadians are saying. And we'll have an assessment of government subsidies for anyone who buys EVs, electrical vehicles. Now, keep in mind, and our guest is going to tell us this, that EVs, because of their expense, 60, what, 60, 70, $80,000, are out of the price range for the majority of Canadians. So subsidies are being given to people who can probably afford it without a subsidy, the electric vehicle. So a lot to, a lot to unpack here. And we're going to begin with the Montreal Economic Institute. We've spoken with uh, representatives of the MEI, MEI on several occasions over the last numbers of years about how Quebecers feel about the issue of oil. And the reason we talk about Quebec is because Quebec is always part of the national conversation, part of the national debate. And Quebec and Western oil particularly have made headlines for decades with premiers and elites in Quebec saying, we don't want Alberta oil, we don't want Western oil, we don't want pipelines, the words dirty oil have been used. Now, when you get down to the short strokes and you actually talk to the people of Quebec, the taxpayers, the folks who are trying to raise a family, pay a mortgage, take care of expenses, they see things quite differently. And uh, we've heard on several occasions in the last numbers of years that 70%, even more than 70% of Quebecers have said, look, if we can't have oil that's produced in Quebec, then we want it from Western Canada. We don't want it from the United States. We don't want it from any other foreign location. We want it from Western Canada. By the way, what is the most favored way to move oil across the country as far as Quebecers are concerned? Pipelines, not trucks, not ships, not trains, pipelines. Another study was done, uh, released just a few days ago by the MEI. Michel Kelly-Gagnon is the president and CEO of the Montreal Economic Institute, joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mr. Kelly-Gagnon, good to have you with us. I was correct about the, those numbers, about 70-plus percent of Quebecers are saying, if it's going to be oil and it's not Quebec oil, let's get it from Alberta. That's correct, isn't it? That's correct. That, on that particular question was asked uh by the way, good afternoon, Mr. Green. Uh, good afternoon. Um, uh, so uh, this specific question was asked uh, and released on November 17, 2021, uh, but I have no reason to believe that it's, uh, you know, uh, any different. And, uh, you know, Quebecers were saying that 71% that their preference was for um, oil coming from Western Canada, and the second most preferred choice was the United States, but at 7%. And then you had 5%, you know, split between a whole bunch of countries. So, yeah, 70%, 71%. Uh, so, that, so that's interesting, and it, it gives uh, these kinds of polls, uh, I, I find, are useful insofar as they give a voice to the, um, we could say, silent majority, um, which by definition is silent, uh, whereas the naysayers and the, the, the you know, organized opposition groups, which, by the way, they're perfectly entitled, you know, to, to express their opinions, but... You know they are they're noisier and they're better organized. So sometimes you get the impression that they represent the majority, but in many on 
many questions they don't. Now, when I tell people, that se- whether it's on the air or off the air, that 70% of Quebecers say, if it can't be Quebec oil, we want oil from Western Canada, they're surprised. Yeah, no one's told them that. Exactly, and, and that's not the narrative that you find uh, in the media. Um, and, and similarly, you know, uh, 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 even though, you know, environmental groups are the darlings of, you know, what you could call mainstream media in Quebec and probably across Canada, truth be told, uh, you know, when you ask them, uh, when you ask Quebecers if they feel that, you know, uh, actions taken by these groups are preventing too many job creations projects in Quebec from moving forward, well, you have, you have 50% who say yes, and only a third, 33% would disagree. The other ones are, you know, indecisive. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's a, an 11 percentage point of increase uh, compared to the previous year where we asked the question. So I, I mentioned this to also say that even, you know, the perception of these groups, um, you know, if you, if you follow just the media, you would think that everybody, you know, feels that they're, like, wonderful, uh, whereas, you know, that's not the opinion of at least, uh, you know, at least half of the, of the population. Now, let me just read a few lines from a release of the poll that you, uh, or the information you released just a few days ago. Uh, as recent international events have brought to the fore the importance of rethinking global energy needs, over half, 52% of Quebecers, believe that their province should develop its own oil resources instead of importing all the oil it consumes. Another one is almost three-quarters of Quebecers, 73%, agree that current taxes and duties on gasoline are already too high and should not be increased further, and half of Quebecers feel the actions taken by some environmental groups are preventing too many job creation projects in Quebec from moving forward. And 54% say Quebec should follow the example of the EU designating natural gas as a green energy source. And then 47% feel job creation in their region is more important than the reduction of global greenhouse gas emissions. Can you wrap that all together for us, Mr. Kelly Daniel? Yeah, well, clearly, uh, I think people have a pragmatic perspective, which is that, you know, I, I think they, they don't disagree with the idea that, you know, uh, you have to care about issues related to climate change, but they also understand that Canada, or even more so Quebec, is a tiny, minuscule proportion of the overall, you know, emissions of gas, and that it may not make sense to kill, you know, high-paying jobs um, on the production side if we continue the same amount of consumption but just consume, you know, oil or gas from somewhere else, especially now that there's the geopolitical, you know, component of it uh, with the Russia aspect of it. So I guess what there's, I think my reading anyway, is that they agree that efforts should be made in terms of, you know, uh, uh, um, you know emission reductions, but they're also realistic about what's the context and the reality. Yeah, well, you go to the grocery store, and you have a finite number of dollars to spend. You go to the gas station, you have a finite number of dollars to spend. And when your finite numbers of dollars run out at the gas station before your tank is full, and your finite numbers of dollars run out at the grocery store before your grocery cart is full, there's a very direct message there. I don't have enough money to pay for all of this, and let's have a look at why it costs so much. 
Let's start with taxes, and people pragmatically have to deal with their own realities, whereas government says, here's what we're doing. And the elites follow the governments, but the average person says, I can't live that way. I just can't live that way. Very true. And, and you know, um, for instance, if you live in the greater Montreal region, uh, total taxes, when you add them all up, whether the name is called tax or something else, is about 33% of the total price. So that's already extremely high. And as you were saying, you were saying in your introduction, there are already plans to increase it even more. Um, so that's, and, and the other thing also is that the price of, of energy is not just the one we see directly. So for instance, when we put gas in our car in order to go to the grocery store, but it's also embedded in the price of the things we buy. Because for instance, this particular grocery store, well, they get their merchandise, merchandise and, and, and whoever is shipping it is, is paying gas and it's included in the price. So even if you were to walk to the grocery store, you're still paying the gas tax. Yeah. Uh, a good friend of mine owns a trucking firm. He's going to be joining us later on in the program. He sent me an email yesterday that every seven days, he spends about $400,000 on fuel. Wow. Yeah. Every yeah. seven days. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so, and, and obviously, you know, he, he can't just pay for that. Like, I mean, it's reflected on whatever he's shipping in yes. terms of cost structure. Um, so, so these are things we have to think about, uh, especially, again, in a context where even if Canada was to get to zero emission tomorrow morning, it would not have any tangible effect or impact whatsoever on the overall emissions, which essentially come from India, China, the U.S., and the European uh, Union. So unless those two, uh, those four, sorry, you know, coordinate some sort of real change, I mean, quite frankly, the rest is just what you could call virtue signaling. For many Canadians, it was a surprise to hear the Minister of National Defence say the federal government can no longer provide lethal weapons to Ukraine for its defence against the Russian invasion. That what we have must be kept in case the CAF requires lethal weapons in large numbers to defend Canada. Disturbing to hear. Um, it is the politician's job to secure weapons for the military on a consistent basis. So what is the situation? Joining us is... Mark Norman, Vice Admiral, former Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and Vice Chief of Staff of the Canadian Armed Forces. Of course, Admiral Norman is retired. Admiral, thank you very much for taking the time. What are we to take from uh, the Defence Minister saying we don't have enough lethal weapons any longer to provide assistance, any more assistance in that regard, to Ukraine? Yeah, well, good afternoon, Roy, to you and your listeners. I think the first uh, and most important thing that we should be interpreting from her comments is that uh, we're seeing the very fragile nature of what I characterize as the bench strength of the armed forces. And that is a result of literally decades of underfunding and um, uh, poor decision-making and lengthy processes related to everything from spare parts to uh, procurement of major equipment. And I'm sure we can explore that in more detail if you want. Yes, please share with us uh, what, in fact, is going on. I mean, we all remember that there were exercises, um, military exercises, that took place in the province of Ontario. And 
This isn't funny, but soldiers were given wooden brooms and told, you know, these are your rifles, say bang. That was disturbing, distracting uh, to, I'm sure, the military. So how bad is it then? And you said it's been going on for decades. Are we equipped at all to, to fight? Uh, will the Canadian military have what it requires to fight if it were required to at home? Well, let's start with um, your your story, your anecdote. I mean, obviously, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that, but I know that stories like that were, were quite widespread uh, quite some time ago. I think it's fair to say that we have come a long way from that. But still, the problem basically comes down to what I characterize as a culture of risk management. And that sounds very sophisticated and that it's all in the best interest of taxpayers. But ultimately, this risk management uh, culture results in short-term decision-making with respect to a variety of things, ranging from, you know, do we really need all of those uh, spare parts? Do we really need all of those supplies and inventory? Um, can we just cut back on this one training exercise? Do we really need all that ammunition? These types of things. And there's the, the lists, litany of, of those types of decisions, and it goes right up to um, what we see in the mainstream reporting on a regular basis are uh, decisions related to major procurement. And Fundamentally, what this has created is the kind of shortages that I think your listeners can totally understand um, through the lens of our pandemic experience, where decisions by previous governments for years had resulted in um, the removal of uh, domestic vaccination development capability, uh, no stockpiling of protective equipment, all these kinds of things. So those are things that people can relate to because it's affected them. It's affected their daily lives. So if they can imagine that in the context of the decisions that are made around military, um, both training exercises, the readiness uh, of the armed forces, and like I said, everything from spare parts to major equipment. Admiral, are, are all three services, come back to the issue of the equipment and the uh, the problems that you say it's sort of generational, I guess, for many decades, procurement of equipment for the military has been questionable at best. Are all three services under-equipped? And even if one or two have the equipment they need, does a shortage of equipment in even one branch of the military make it difficult, not impossible, to coordinate an integrated military response? Well, yes. The, the short answer is yes. And, and the way you've laid out the question speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. Um, so the there are no uh, special categories or special status with respect to the, the main branches of the Canadian Forces. They're all suffering similar problems. Um, the Air Force's problem is measured in terms of um, poor availability of its aircraft fleets and uh, significantly reduced flying rates based on availability and also based on budget. So that affects the training of their crews. That affects the availability of the aircraft. The Navy has similar problems with respect to the maintenance of its ships. The limited number of people are available. Uh, they can't crew all the ships. They can't get the training they need. These are these are wicked problems by definition, and the Army suffers the same problem. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing right now with respect to handheld air defense weapons and things like that, where we've already basically given up uh, any 
surplus, if there was some to begin with, um, and we're now at a critical point where we can't give any more away because we just don't have it to give. Um, so it, it is it is a serious problem. It took uh, a long time to get here, and it can't be fixed overnight. No, and as, as you say, um, there's always a question about do we need this, do we need that, do we need this exercise, do we need to spend this money on on this, there's money available for other programs the federal government particularly seems to be enamored with, or successive federal governments seem enamored with. But when it comes to the military, there's shortchanging that takes place. And uh, even most recently, Mr. Trudeau in, in Europe was reminded by the head of NATO that, you know, he made a commitment. A certain amount of money was going to be spent on, on keeping your military uh, up to date. You better get at it. Um, this must be demoralizing within the within the forces where you just you know what you need and you're not getting it yeah so um you're you're quite insightful in that regard yes uh the you know the, the women and men that are serving in the military uh, know that they don't always have the tools or the opportunities that they should have to um ensure that they're ready for whatever canada needs them to do that is frustrating for them um, and equally, you know, going back to the opening part of your question, at the strategic level, these are these are conscious decisions that are made. Um, and it, it's easy to go back and describe in, in forensic terms how we got where we are. But ultimately, um, decisions are made to spend money or not spend money, and they have direct impacts. And it's not always about equipment. You and I have talked before. I don't like getting into shopping lists of what we should or shouldn't have. But equally, um, even if what we had in inventory today was up to standard and we had enough of it and it did all the right things, the problem would be simply that we're not giving the opportunities necessary to maintain the equipment, to train the people, and and all of these things. Uh, And so that's kind of where we find ourselves. As far as going forward is concerned, um, if we're going to make grand statements about spending more money, then we actually have to spend the money. Um, the commitment doesn't end by simply putting a line item in a budget somewhere and declaring success. This is These are difficult things to achieve. The process is laborious and inefficient, and it takes a commitment to actually deliver on the commitments that are being made. A culture change has to be a culture change, correct? Yeah, in many respects, you're right, because... We we do have, as I described earlier, uh, we suffer this culture of um, both a combination, in my opinion, of uh, this issue of risk management and at the sort of strategic level with respect to our ambitions as a nation, we tend to focus on the world we would like to live in and that, that taints how we act as opposed to accepting the realities of the world we actually live in and and acting strategically in that context. And and that's, I think, one of the issues that's playing out right now as we witness the atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine. We're realizing that we don't like this world, um, but we've, in many respects, allowed ourselves to um, get to a point where we can't do much about it, unfortunately. Weapons and weapon systems, Admiral Norman, they're a verb available for purchase from our allies. There's no shortage of equipment if we just decide to get what we require what we need yes yes and no and and i'm not being um <laughs> i'm not being uh 
difficult here. It's just, it, it depends. Some systems are produced um, on a regular basis and they're in inventory uh, from suppliers or they can be produced relatively quickly. And, um, and, and, and that's what we characterize as off the shelf or, or, you know, near off the shelf. Other systems, however, are um, built to order and they're more bespoke uh, or specific to the needs. Um, and so it really depends what we're trying to get. And, and a lot of allies have done similar things uh, to us in Canada. They've kind of cut back on their own allocations. And so even some of the ones that produce equipment, the United States in particular, are not necessarily producing it to the same volume. So that's a long answer. As you know, I struggle with short answers, but it really depends. Um, trucks and planes and things like that are a little more uh, easily accessible large complex items like um, fighter jets and surface combatants or even submarines typically have to be built to order. Yeah, we've, we've had, as you've said, decades, decades to get it done. And for decades, federal governments have not done what, what they need to do. And when you think about sending young men and young women into danger, you have to give them what they require in order to be able to carry out their, their missions. I, I think, uh, you know, our military did remarkably well, did exceedingly well in Afghanistan. But if I have this correctly, the government went out and bought what was required for that particular land mission. Uh, but we, we, we gather from what the defense minister said, we're not in any, any position to send our young men and women into battle if it became necessary for any protracted period of time because we don't have the, pardon me, stuff they need. Yeah, it, that, that's true. It's, it's accurate. And, and, you know, the, the uh, Afghanistan experience is a, is a useful one because it points to a few things. One, that we were not prepared. We were not prepared materially uh, uh, in terms of the equipment um, that, that was available. And to a lesser degree, uh, we weren't as prepared from a personnel and readiness perspective as we could be. But we learned um, on the fly, so to speak. And the system did react because they realized that they were in in a significant commitment. And and now we have, um, if we look at, for example, the battle group in Latvia um, on the front lines uh, of the deterrence mission in, in terms of the eastern front of NATO, um, roughly 500 people, plus or minus. Um, and, and the effort necessary to sustain that 500 people is quite extraordinary, and they they don't necessarily have all of the equipment that they need, and this is why the minister is in, uh, I would argue, the unenviable position of having to admit that the cupboards are bare. Marco Suprun is originally from Winnipeg. He lives in Kiev in Ukraine now, and he joins us from Kiev. Marco, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. We're doing okay. Well, let me ask you, how, how long have you been living in Kyiv after leaving Canada? How long have you been in the city now? Uh, we moved to Ukraine back in uh, 2013, uh, just at the uh, start of the Maidan Revolution. So that's what, about uh, eight or nine years ago, coming on nine years now. Right. What was the city like? What was Kyiv like as a place to live, quality of life, six weeks ago? Oh, six weeks ago puts us into uh, <clears throat> January. Well, it was <clears throat> the topic of the town was it was very tense. 
um, was pretty much on the news most of the time, the buildup of the forces. Um, so everyone was getting used to the fact that uh, the Russians had lined up a significant number of their army around the border. But in classical Ukrainian fashion, um, humor started to take over. And uh, people had, um, in Ukraine, there's this period between December and January that's called the holidays because we still celebrate the old and now the new calendar. So it's a, it's kind of a going joke that you say, if you want to get something done, you say, well, let's just wait till after the holidays. They keep putting things off. <clears throat> and when the buildup was happening, a joke started to emerge that, well, let's just do it after the invasion. So there was this, it's kind of dark humor, uh, obviously a little bit black comedy, but it, people just started to integrate this notion that this was eventually going to happen. And you have to remember too, that Ukrainians have been living with war since about 2014, when the Russians first invaded. Yes. Um, granted, this is an entirely different level because of the massiveness of it, and it's countrywide. So the, but the sentiment is that uh, we're going to win. Uh, Ukrainians have, like you said, punched above their weight. You know, I'm just looking at uh, Kiev, uh, some video of Kiev prior to the invasion. Looks like a marvelous city, magnificent city, where quality of life would have been excellent. And, uh, and and that was just so dramatically crushed by this U uh, Russian invasion. Although, again, uh, the Ukrainian army and the people of Ukraine are fighting back and, as we said, punching above um, their weight. What is what is like in Kiev today? What's a day like for you in, in Kiev, in the city today? Well, it's there's um, you're absolutely right. Kiev had a vibrant, uh, vibrant nightlife, a vibrant artist community, even a vibrant subculture community. Um, you had cafes everywhere, little uh, bars, um, a lot of um, what do you call those um, beers that are made on in house uh, craft beers places, great restaurants, uh, very affordable place to live. You could always. Uh, strike up a conversation with somebody over in the morning for picking up a coffee on the way to work. And there's the hustle and bustle. There's uh, definitely a lot less of that. Um, we walk every morning to our office. It's about a half an hour walk and it's, uh, it's almost empty now in the mornings. Um, and walking home when there should be a traffic jam, there isn't. Um, now, actually it's kind of weird now <clears throat> when you walk say around seven, till five o'clock in the evening i saw a couple of cars and i thought oh look at that the traffic is coming back to normal but it's people are being stopped now there's checkpoints uh at, at several intersections uh the downtown area is heavily protected there's uh several big large checkpoints with uh, big concrete blocks um the nightlife is is non-existent obviously because we're still uh, curfew every evening in fact it just started at 8 p.m till 7 a.m and uh about on the second week the um the street lights are all turned off so it's very dark and i live very close to the uh, canadian embassy and uh, it used to be lit up but now it's, it's the street is very dark and so you can actually if you have the view from your window you can actually see some of the stars for the first time so people are actually recognizing just the um the effect that it's had we went out for a walk today um uh, through the downtown area and there's some life. There's some, a lot of people are going to uh, grocery stores. Um, grocery stores do have products in them. They do have fresh produce. Um, granted, not everything. You have to look a little bit more. Like we were looking for onions today. 
you had to go through a couple of different uh, grocery stores. There's a few chains that are still functioning, but KF, the KF city administration has been really amazing. They created these humanitarian centers to uh, help with the uh, supplies for the elderly. And that's another thing that we noticed uh, walking around town is that there's a lot of elderly left in KF. Uh, a lot of the people who could uh, have sought shelter in other cities in the West, um, but those who couldn't are, are here. So it's uh, you see a lot of the volunteers getting together. There's even a Telegram chat where you can, you know, they post to help this uh, little old lady at this and this address who needs her meds. So people will stand in line at the uh, pharmacy and get her meds for her. So, so that kind of reaction is something that is uh, is uniquely Ukrainian, I think. But I, I think it's also Canadian. I think anyone in this situation, uh, I believe in the best of humanity, would come out just to help people around you. Yeah, we certainly have a sense of that when we watch the people in Ukraine. Now, we understand that there are Russian tanks, uh, Russian uh, military in some of the suburbs of the city. Uh, President Zelensky has asked Western politicians for more assistance fighting the Russian military, particularly requesting that uh, no-fly zone for weeks now. Um, he was he addressed the Canadian Parliament earlier in the week. He also addressed the uh, American Congress and the German government. What is your sense of the response from the West to the requests by Ukraine? What, what do you, what's your feeling about that? Well, I, I think that, you know, you started off by saying that the um, Canadians, uh, that Prime Minister Trudeau said that they don't, we don't have any, or Canada doesn't have any weapons to give. But, you know, there's other ways that Canadians could help. You know, for example, if you notice that the cities that are being bombed by uh, the Russians, the first responders are on the scene and they're doing heroic work. Um, you know, there's, I know that there's about to be launched an initiative to help with the first responders. In Ukraine, they're called the State Emergency Services because it's a national organization. And that's certainly something that I think Canadians could be, um, you know, apply their skill set toward. Um, I know that we need, for example, um, I know that they need um, CBRM uh, uh, equipment, chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear uh, protective equipment, uh, masks, for example. Um, and they're uh, even some of the hoses, for example, they're not, um, they don't have an indefinite lifespan. Uh, I know that they need um, even elementary things to, to get the, what they're doing and documenting some of the crimes against humanity for the eventual tribunal that will one day happen and the cameras to the uh, state emergency services. They, they're doing uh, really heroic work um, in, the, in the background. I mean, they're first on the scene. Just a couple of days ago, uh, uh, a area, um, a neighborhood in Cave was hit. Um, a school and uh, the surrounding um, apartments were damaged and they can't be lived in. Um, it was pretty pretty intense damage, and I think there was a few um, people that that lost their lives there. Um, but I know that that's something that Canada is pretty good at. Um, you know, getting that kind of help on the ground, or for example, even you know, getting the ambassador back in, into country. Um, a lot of people have left. I think the last count was that there's three and a half million that have fled into Poland, Slovakia, and Czechia. But internally, there are the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, on Friday updated their statistics that it's about six and a half million internally displaced. Um, the UN and the international organizations, they need to set up shop inside Ukraine. 
Um, it's great that they're doing the work that they are in Poland and the neighboring countries, but we're having, uh, I mean, people are being evacuated from the east to the west. Some places are even being evacuated within the east. So like Kharkiv, Sumy, uh, Konotop, people were evacuated to Poltava. Um, these cities are going to need uh, the help of the international organizations, um, putting up temporary housing, providing f food and clothing. These are initiatives that the politicians in Ottawa can certainly be influential in getting the UN, the UNHCR and the IOM inside of Ukraine. Um, it's, they're going to have to expand their capabilities and their operations. They're going to have to make sure that Ukrainians stay who want to stay in Ukraine or those who want to come home want to come home. Um, we were internally displaced for about a week and we realized that, uh, you know, it, we came home, we came back to Kiev. It's, it's a weird feeling to be uh, walking around a different town and you see the other people who are also internally displaced and they recognize the look in your eyes. Yeah. Um, and, and so when we came back to Kiev by train, gotta tell you, the train was full. Everyone was coming back to, to town. Not, I can't say everyone, I'm sorry. But a lot of people are returning to Kiev. I think the last thing I read was like 300,000 men had returned back to Kiev and they're signing up to take part in the defense of, uh, of the capital city. But those are some things that certainly the Canadians could, you know, the Canadian government could get involved with. I mean, yeah, sure. there's nothing more, there's nothing more stronger than a resource of the federal government to, to, to get the resources that they have at place and fire equipment, for example, or even just training, getting firemen in search and rescue efforts, yeah. uh, brigade of search and rescue would be very helpful. Let's talk to uh, Colin Craig. He's the president of secondstreet.org and secondstreet.org ran a national poll about uh, what Canadians think about what we should be doing as far as developing and exporting more gas and oil uh, internationally is concerned. So we've been talking about this, Colin. Thank you. It's good to talk to you again. What did Canadians tell you and by what percentage? 78% of Canadians, Roy, said that they agree with the idea of Canada producing and exporting more oil and gas so that the world doesn't have to buy Putin's oil and continue to fund his war machine. 78%. Pretty, pretty clear majority. About 10% oppose this nationwide. So Canadians are on one page and governments are on another. That's that's the reality of what the poll found. Did that number surprise you? Um, a, a little bit. It's very high. I mean, it's not too shocking. We have to remember the images that we've seen day after day for the past three weeks coming out of Ukraine. Yes. Vladimir Putin's tanks attacking apartment buildings and hospitals and even a nuclear power plant. And I think Canadians are starting to understand that the West has actually been funding those tanks and that assault because we've been buying oil from Russia. We've been buying natural gas and Putin has taken those dollars and he's bought tanks and rockets and it's paying for his invasion. So I think people are horrified at what's happening. I think a lot of people understand, too, that, you know, oil and gas isn't going anywhere, not any anytime soon. The world is going to continue to buy that resource. And so... We have a choice as a country. Do we want to help the world get off of Putin's oil and natural gas or not? And if we yeah. do, there's also benefit for our own security as well. Well, that's it. I mean, that is so true. 
and and the amount of money that could be earned by this country selling oil that we produce in an ethical manner in a democratic uh, structure is far superior to buying oil should go without saying from people like Putin now Canada wasn't buying I don't think Canada bought any oil from Putin after 2018 or 19 but nevertheless uh, the United States did. Other countries did. We import 700 or 750,000 barrels of oil a day from wonderfully democratic places like Saudi Arabia. I say that with my tongue firmly lodged in my cheek. <laughs> but we do. We, we, we do. And, and then we have a majority opinion like you have, Colin. Second straight, you've got, you know, you have Canadians telling you. This is what we want. And, you know, they're, they're also being thoughtful in response to 68% support developing and exporting more oil and natural gas, but they want their tax revenues to go to, tell us what? Environmental projects. And, and I think this is sort of a middle ground. I mean, the Prime Minister's obviously developed a brand where he, he's said he's going to address climate change and he thinks it's a major priority. So I think it's a little bit challenging for him to agree to some of these projects, at least it's the optics, right? But I think a sort of a middle ground for him would be to start approving more pipelines, more natural gas, more oil projects in the name of global security. And he could take the revenues and use it to pay for activities that reduce emissions, including the development of technology that helps reduce emissions, which Canada could then export worldwide. And think of the value proposition we'd be left with if we did that, Roy. A country could buy oil and gas from Russia and help fund his war machine, or they could buy oil and gas from Canada, and some of those dollars would be used to develop technology to reduce emissions. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a very stark contrast, yeah. and I Just think imagine. it's a, a middle ground for uh, elected officials to consider. If we see another four to six weeks or longer of more Russian atrocities in Ukraine, including perhaps the use of biological chemical or chemical weapons, What's the public opinion going to be then? <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, we could have hit 100 or very close to it. And I, I think you, you, you've, you've touched on a very important point, is that we, we have to stop thinking about this issue today. A year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, does anybody really think it makes sense to buy oil and gas from Russia? It doesn't. It doesn't. The world needs to find another source. And... You know, these projects take a while to get going. You can't just turn the key and they start the next day. That's right. So I think we need to be talking about this rather urgently. And it, 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 I think it clearly makes sense that Canadians are on board with the idea of uh, Canada stepping up as a producer and exporter. Yeah, let's ask Leonardo DiCaprio to stay in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, we need to stop listening to celebrities on a whole bunch of issues, and this is certainly one of them, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. He, I wonder if he knows what a Chinook is by now. I, w I, w I wouldn't bet on it. He's <laughs> not the best red man out there. No, he's not. He's a titanic individual, though. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 